Open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing in our series of studies on the family today. There was a book that came out, uh, oh man, 30 years ago, something like that, called The Satan Seller, written by a guy named Mike Warnke. And uh, the reason it was called The Satan Seller is because Mike Warnke shared his testimony in this book where he believed, uh, or he told us, that he had been a high, a high priest in the church of Satan and had participated in all kinds of ungodly things, and this was before he was a Christian. And, and then he went on to share his testimony about how uh, he, he, got, uh, he uh, was in such trouble with different criminal elements with his drug business that uh, he went in the Navy and became a Navy corpsman and went to Vietnam and... Uh, you know, described some of his exploits as a Navy corpsman with the Marines, you know, and that he, what a hero he was saving Marines and so on. And, and, uh, and then through his basic training or sometime in the Navy, uh, through the witness of another Christian, he became, a, he became saved and his life began to change. And, and then um, as things went on, he became such a Christian that he, he went out uh, essentially preaching. Uh, he, he was called a Christian comedian. He would tell funny stories and then kind of preach uh, through that, lead people to Christ. And, and he was very popular back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, um, up, up into the early 90s. He was very well known and very popular. Only problem was his life story as depicted in that book wasn't true. As I... Uh, was thinking this week about the topic of lying. I got to thinking about Mike Warnke, and I thought, you know, I've got one of his books on the shelf, I think. So I went, and sure enough, I have his second book, I think it is, called The Schemes of Satan. And I opened it up, and he even signed it. I saw him somewhere, and he, he signed it. But the thing that I have in my files that now has been made into a, an entire book called Selling Satan is an expose written by Cornerstone Magazine, which is a tabloid-type magazine that comes out from a Christian ministry in Chicago. And page after page, where they interviewed, they took his book and the things that he said, and they went and interviewed people. They interviewed the people, they found the people that he said he went to college with, and so on and so forth, and it was a lie. It was a lie after lie after lie. And when this came out, what we also found out about Mike Warnke that we didn't know was at the time this came out, which was in like 90, uh, 1991, 92, somewhere in there, he was on his fourth marriage. Do you suppose his lying had anything to do with the first three marriages breaking up? I mean, what kind of a man builds a whole ministry on a set of lies that to this day he has never repudiated. He's never repented of his lying. I believe he's on his fifth wife. If you find his books, everyone's dedicated to a different wife. <laughs> Not joking. They've, and they've got interviews with him in there. He even claimed to know Anton LaVey, which is the high priest of the real church of Satan. And they went and interviewed him for the book. And presumably he said, no, I've never met Mike Warnke. He's a liar. And he built a ministry on that. 
And I have to believe that that was part of the breakdown of his family. As we continue our, the study of God's word and how it ought to impact our family, we're coming in Ephesians 4 to a passage of scripture that has a whole series of short instructions. And we're going to look at those just a few at a time. We're going to look at the first three of them today. The first one of which is that God commands us to be honest people. The other two is that he commands us not only toward honesty, but humility and responsibility. And we'll look at those each one. Successful families are built on honesty. Now you might say, why am I starting here? Well, I'm starting here because that's where God starts. We looked at the previous verses last week where, in which God describes the spirit-filled life. And he says, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes in. And if he is controlling your life, then you are being made new day by day. And then he comes around to a whole list of specific instructions. It's like he said, you're being made new day by day. Number one, what's the first thing he says? He talks about honesty. Let's read it in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the wrath go down, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. We want to look at these first three traits today of the godly person, and I think by extension, the godly family. Successful families are built on honesty. Well, if we're going to know what honesty is, we need to, first of all, or if we're going to pursue honesty, we have to embrace lying as a sin. Now, I suppose if I was preaching 30 or 40 years ago, I wouldn't have to stand up here and say lying is a sin. I had uh, a young person, uh, you know, young adult come into my office many years ago in Tukwila. They didn't know the Lord, and we were talking about sin, and they said, well, what is sin? And I read a list of sins out of a couple passages in the Scripture, and it was totally new material. You need to understand today, if you never have before, that lying is a sin. Here's what God says about it. Revelation 21.8, almost to the end of the Bible. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now again, is God saying that if you have ever done any of these things, you're going to hell? No, he's not saying that. He's saying that if your life is characterized day to day to day to day by these sins, what he's really saying is then you're not a Christian. The book of 1 John makes it real clear that if you claim to be in the light, that is in God's light, you will live that way. And people who are Christians don't live this way. If you get to the end of your life and you die and you stand before God at the great white throne judgment, and these sins are still present in yourself because Christ has not forgiven them yet, because you haven't believed yet, you will be sent to hell. Lying is a bad enough sin to send somebody to hell if they've never accepted Christ. Now that means to me it must be a bad thing in God's eyes. 
And for that matter, it's in good company, isn't it? Idolaters, sorcerers, that sorcerer is a word for like witchcraft, sexually immoral, murder. That's the company that God puts the word lying in. Well, to me, that makes it a fairly serious kind of sin. Listen to what Jesus said about lying. He's talking to some folks that were ungodly. He said, you're of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Lying must be recognized as sin. Do you want to start to tell the truth? If you have a lying problem, do you want to start to tell the truth? Here's the key. Say these words to yourself regularly. Lying is a sin. Do you know what it means to confess to God? We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But to confess means to agree. To agree with God. What is God's opinion of lying? God's opinion is it is a sin. It's wrong. The beginning of change is to say lying is wrong. Lying must be stopped in all of its forms. Now, I've listed what I've called some different forms of lying, and you may be able to relate to some of them. Um, How many forms of lying are there? I was thinking about that today, and I thought, I think there's as many forms of lying as there are people in the world. But I've attempted to categorize a few because we tend to excuse certain kinds of lies. The first kind of lie is the lie of silence. That's the lie when you just don't tell the truth. You know, sometimes in the families, this is a very significant kind of lying. What I mean is, when you close your mouth and harbor thoughts and feelings inside of you and will not express them, you're not telling the truth. And that is not a way to build an effective family. The second lie is the lie of partial truth. It's not quite as bad because it's partially true. We went on a uh, five-day hike with our youth group when I was a youth pastor. The first year we did that, we encountered some very adverse adverse circumstances, and and it was almost a life-threatening condition we got into, but it ended up having a very good impact on the youth group overall. But the next year... (laughs) The next year we went to a a place that was more safe and uh, was very uneventful. And on the last day, we're camping, we're up at the head of Lake Chelan, we're camped out there, and these two girls, the pastor's daughter, and one of them, comes running up, they're riding some bicycles, they pedaled up and they threw the bikes down and they go, man, you won't believe what just happened to us. And we go, what? We were down there at that little store and there's a little place where they play pool and we were kind of playing pool and some guys come around and go, hey, we want to play pool with you. And and they said, no, we don't want to play pool with you and kind of kept going back and forth and these guys were getting more aggressive. And so this, this one girl, she says, so I just smacked him one and we ran off. And we go, you're kidding. And she goes, yeah, I'm kidding. <laughs> she said, this year's hike was so dull compared to last year's hike, we had to make up something. Had to make up something to make it fun, you know. Now, we all understand that you can have fun with that kind of stuff. And, and God's not going to, God doesn't hate that. That's just having fun. But sometimes we tell part of the truth on purpose for some sinful reason. 
And a partial lie is the same. <laughs> Do you suppose God is in heaven going, well, that's only a half a lie. I guess that's okay. No, a partial lie is as bad as a full lie. Here's, a, here's an interesting one, the lie of concern. I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Didn't want to hurt your feelings. You know, I've been living in sin against you all this time, but I only told you it's been this long because I didn't want to hurt your feelings. Friends, there's only one reason we lie, and that's for ourself. That's really what I put here next, the lie of preservation. Ultimately, the reason we lie is to preserve ourselves, to preserve our life in some form. Uh, the lie of preservation is usually a bold lie, and it's told on purpose in an attempt to protect. I don't want you to be upset with me. I don't want you to discipline me. I don't want you to fire me. I, whatever it is, I'm caring about me, and so I'm going to lie to you. The fifth one is a little more sinister. It's the lie of persuasion. This is a way that we attempt to manipulate other people's thinking. False doctrine, biblical false doctrine is based on deceptive teaching. The New Testament tells us that. They say there are, he, God tells us there are some teachers who are deceiving people. And believe you me, false, false doctrine, you can name the church that you want that teaches false doctrine. There is truth mixed in with it. And they use that truth to manipulate your thinking to get you to their goal. The lie of persuasion says, I want you to believe something or to do something, so I will lie to change your mind. I had a mom ask me if it would be okay to lie to her child, a certain kind of a lie, in order to change the child's behavior. And I, I, I wanted to say, you're talking to a preacher, lady. I'm holding the phone here, you know. I wanted to say, what are you thinking? You really think I'm going to say, oh yeah, that's okay, because obviously you're concerned for your daughter and you want to change these circumstances and whatever will change her behavior, that's okay. Do you suppose that's how God works? And that God would approve of that? Well, of course not. And, and, and obviously, what do you want your daughter to grow up to be? You want her to lie to you? One, it'll spare your feelings or change your behavior. I, I, I knew a person who was married who said, I, they, they told their spouse, we're getting divorced, I'm, I'm leaving you. And then they said, I'm not really going to leave, I just want them to change their behavior. Well, that's just hurtful on so many levels. But the, the key thing is this, folks. Are you trying, do you call yourself a Christian are you trying to reap God's blessing in your life? Do you think then that God's going to bless your life if you don't tell the truth? No matter what you call it, no matter how you justify it or rationalize it, you're either a truth teller or a liar. There's no middle ground on this. Lying must be acknowledged. It must be recognized as sin. It must be stopped. And then, and I want you to look again at the, at the verse here, because this is the key concept we talked about last week and, and from the previous passage, put off, put on, put off, put on. Or in this case, he says, put off. He says, put off lying, and then he says, speak truth. God always commends us and commands us to put off the bad habit and put on the righteous habit it's, it's a single action. We, we, we stop lying and we start telling the truth. 
So how do we tell the truth? Well, first of all, we say lying must be replaced with truth. Truth springs out of love. Truth springs out of love. Look what he says there. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Here's a question to ask yourself. Am I really caring for others when I lie to them? Is that that really what I'm doing, or am I really caring for myself? How about turning this around? When do you enjoy being lied to? When are you happy that somebody lied to you? Hmm. Well, God says treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated, right? Well, then don't lie to them because you don't like being lied to. I, I, one, of the, one of the times I was regularly asked about lying, when I was a chaplain for the police department, somebody had died and they said, well, we're not going to tell so-and-so, certain relative. Oh, it would, we're not going to tell them, it would just kill them. And I always thought, I think they're going to find out eventually. In fact, that's what I would say to them. i say, you know, they're going to find out. And when they find out then that you didn't tell them, then they're going to be mad at you, plus they're going to be sad over this loved one. I mean, truth springs out of love. Are you really acting in love toward people? Not when you lie, but when you tell the truth, you are. And I, and I guess parents, this really comes home to you when you ask this question. Do you want your family members, your children, to grow up to be like Jesus? Well, of course you do. Well, then you need to train them to tell the truth. Truth springs out of love. The other facet of this that requires some wisdom is this. Truth must be told in love. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 15. This is in a set of instructions that is specifically to the church as a body, but I believe as we look at the whole of God's truth, it it absolutely applies to us as individuals and in our families. Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Just that little phrase needs to get into your memory. One phrase, you can memorize one phrase of of Scripture. In fact, I'm going to help you. We're going to say this phrase, I will speak the truth in love. Let's say it together. I will speak the truth in love. Now you notice God doesn't say truth at all costs. God doesn't say that truth trumps all other virtues. There are people who say, well, I always just speak my mind. That's just the way I am, as though that is virtuous. And it's not. Because God says, I must speak the truth in love. Now, does that starting, is that starting to sound like, like telling a partial truth? No, it's not. We're going to learn more about this as we, as we work through this passage. But the thing we must understand is this. Honesty does not set aside God's requirement of love. And so the question I must ask myself is not how can I avoid the truth, but how can I communicate the truth in a loving manner? How would Christ tell this truth to this person? How can I be gracious and kind and honest? There are those who love to love. 
And so they don't speak the truth. And then there are those on the other side. God says, bring that together. And we're going to see a little bit of that as we go through these other two traits. Successful families are built on honesty, and then successful families are built on humility. Look at verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Now you might be asking, why did I use the word humility to define this? Let me give you the short report, and then we're going to talk about the rest of it here. If you are a proud, arrogant person, you are not going to respond well to anger-inducing situations. If you are a humble person, you have the beginning of responding in a godly manner. Now let's see what that means. First of all, we need to understand this. Anger is a natural response to injustice. This is my definition. God never completely defines the naturalness and the righteousness of anger in the Scripture, but we'll look at a couple of examples. And I, this is the best I've been able to, to render it down. We see things or we experience things that are just not right. Somebody has wronged us, that's an injustice. Somebody is wronging someone else, that's an injustice. And this feeling wells up within us. Anger is a natural response. Do you notice that God says, be angry, but don't sin? He does not condemn anger. But he condemns anger when it is not controlled. Listen to this when I talk about a natural response. Psalm 11. Have you ever seen this verse? God is a just or a fair judge, and he is angry with the wicked every day. If you're here and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, put your name where it says wicked. God is angry with you every day. Boy, I thought God was a loving God. He is loving. That's why he sent Jesus to take your sins away. He wants to forgive your sins through your faith in Christ. But if you will reject Christ as Savior, then you are remaining wicked. And God even calls you an enemy. That's how serious God is about this. Wow. Mark 3, 5. And when Jesus had looked around at them with anger being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. What's the injustice there? The injustice is that these people he was looking at were Pharisees who had all these rules and they said it's not right to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus was angry with them because they believed and practiced something that was not God's truth. And he was angry and he said, be healed. He basically said, you folks are wrong. He was angry and it was righteous. It is possible to be angry and righteous. Listen to this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother, what's the next phrase? Without a cause. He shall be in danger of the judgment. There is righteous anger and there is unrighteous anger according to that scripture. Here's the, here's the fact, folks. We are created in the image of God and part of that image is our ability to become angry with wrongdoing. 
And so anger is not a sin. You will never be rid of the angry response to injustice, but you can control it because anger is not an autonomous emotion. The word autonomous means self-ruling. Especially those people who have a hard time, have an extra problem with anger, they tend to think, I don't control my anger, it just comes up all on its own. And I would suggest to you that is at least partially wrong. I understand that the response to injustice is a natural response, but that does not mean that everything that goes with it is a self-ruling emotion which we cannot control. Think about these two thoughts. If your anger was beyond your control, God would not tell you to control it. That's a very simplistic statement, but it's profound in its simplicity. God says, be angry, but don't sin. So it's possible to control anger. It is not out of your control. Number two, God never tells us to work on emotions. He does command us to control our thoughts and behaviors. And that is not just for anger. That is for all emotions. God never says, pursue happiness. He never says, pursue certain feelings. Feelings are the tail end of a process that starts with your thoughts or beliefs and your behaviors, and the feelings are the result of that. God tells us to deal with our thoughts and behaviors. That's what we looked at last week in the previous passage. Anger is not an autonomous emotion. God does tell us to deal with our thoughts, and especially in a verse like this. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, physical, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing how many thoughts into captivity? What? Every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Are you telling me it's possible for your thoughts to reflect the thought life of Jesus? Yes. Am I telling you I've gotten there yet? No. No. But that is the goal. To control what I think. Because if I control what I think, my behavior will be righteous and my feelings will be pleasant. Or at least appropriate. I wouldn't say that, for instance, grief is, is pleasant, but it is appropriate. Anger is not an autonomous emotion, is not on its own. Anger is resolved by righteous thoughts and behaviors. And I've put this in five C's that maybe you can remember at least a few of them. And, and this is not, you know, there could be more than this in the scripture, but I put a few thoughts together and that's this. Number one, control. We must respond, not react to anger. Let's, let's, let's pick something we could all agree with. If, if we were walking down the street and some man attacked some woman and just started beating her up, okay? If, if we have any kind of conscience to us, we'd think, hey, that's not right. And so we look around and there's a lead pipe. And we get that lead pipe and we give that guy a whack and it knocks him silly and he falls to the ground. And then we take that lead pipe and we beat his head right off his shoulders, 
I would submit to you that the first whack was righteous and the rest were not. You understand? There's a difference between reacting and responding. Should we do something about that situation? Absolutely! But it should be a Christ-like, purposeful, biblical response. That's how you control anger. That's what it means to control anger. I don't mean to believe by using the word control that you can stop that feeling from welling up inside of you. But you can control what you do with it afterwards. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Why? For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When you have the feeling of anger and you just express it, you just blow out like a blowtorch, you're not doing God's work. Oh, you'll get somebody to change their behavior, no doubt. Oh, excuse me. But you're not doing God's work. You're doing your work, and that is not righteousness. We must control, we must respond, not react. Number two, consideration. This is, this, uh, these two things go hand in hand. To stop and say, is my anger righteous? Or even to break it down, what part of my anger is righteous? Parents, when your children willingly rebel and disobey, is it right to be angry? Absolutely. Absolutely. They have sinned against you and God. Are you a sinner for being angry over that? No way. That's, that's the kind of anger Jesus had. These Pharisees were willingly rebelling against God and him, and it made him angry. And I would even submit to you that God puts anger in us to, to like motivate us. We've got to do something about this. And if you're a parent and your children are rebellious and sinful, you should do something about it. Absolutely. You're, it's your job. But we need to always stop and say, now why am I so angry? Even for a parent, am I angry because my child has embarrassed me? That's not the same as being mad at rebellion. I need to separate myself away from this and say, you know what? I'm concerned for my child because they are being willfully disobedient. That's the thing that needs to be fixed, not my embarrassment. Sometimes parents need to put their embarrassment aside and do something. How great is it for a pastor to have his kid around in the church being disobedient right there? Are you going to stop and take care of the kid right there in front of everybody and put these people aside? You better believe it. And I don't care whether I'm embarrassed. I care if that kid grows up being an obedient kid. He matters in that situation, not me. We have to consider our anger and control the part that is unrighteous, put it away, and embrace the part that is righteous and figure out how God wants us to act. And these next two things deal with that. If my anger is unrighteous, then I need to confess it to God. Or I need to confess that part. I've been thinking things or I've done something. Then I may need to confess part of it. If you don't start confessing the wrong parts of your anger, you'll never get a handle on your anger. When you over-discipline your children, 
you have to go and say, son, I'm sorry, I, 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 my words were wrong, my actions were wrong, whatever it was. Your children can accept an apology and can realize that you're not perfect and that's much better than for you to do nothing or to just say, oh, it's no big deal. Yes, you need to go and confess to them and to God. The other thing that you may well need to do is confrontation. And I think a lot of people are less willing to do confrontation than they are to do some other things. Do I need to bring a sin to someone's attention? Or if it's in the workplace, it may not be a sin so much as a, uh, you know, a breaking of the rules or a failure to act. I mean, yes, those things make you angry. Are you righteous to be angry if you're a supervisor at work and somebody's not doing their job? Yes, that's righteous anger. Now, what are you going to do about it? Then you need to go and confront them. You know this verse from Matthew 18, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Here's a little sidebar, folks. In Matthew 5, he says, If you know that your brother has something against you, like you've hurt him now, and you know that, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to him and apologize, make it right. If he sins against you, you're supposed to go and confront. If you have sinned and you find that out, you're supposed to go and apologize. So here's the trick part. You're always supposed to do something. You're always supposed to work at resolving these things. Listen to Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. Put that right in your definition of righteousness in anger. If you're going out to pay somebody back, you can just be guaranteed you're doing something sinful. Beloved, do not avenge yourself. Do not seek justice for yourselves. Now, if it's, a, if it's the legal system and the normal channels, that's of God, but you going out to make revenge, whether it's with your words or your deeds or whatever, don't do it. Give place to wrath. There is a right place. Control it. Put it there. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do you know what your controlling of anger does in that situation? It turns God loose. Now, do you think God could pay back those other people better than you? If you don't, you have a very small view of God. And you have a very small view of how God can make you feel inside about doing the righteous thing as opposed to the joy you're going to get from paying somebody back. We need to confront, that is to resolve. We need to go and say, this is not right. We need to work this through. The fifth possibility with our anger and handling it righteously is this, covering. Can I let go of this without confronting? Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers how many sins? All sins. Now, here's something you really got to stick in your mind. It is not righteous to keep, a, to keep a wrong inside and to meditate on it and to be bitter about it while keeping your mouth closed. Oh, I'm covering that. Oh, no, you're not. You're not covering it because it leaks out every so often. To cover it means I just plain put it away. I don't 
deal, I, I, I don't bring it up. I don't harangue people about it. I don't save it till that choice moment when we're in an argument and then say, blah, 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 look what you did to me. If you're covering it, you're covering it. It's gone, it's done, it's away. There's a lot of little things between husbands and wives need to be covered, need to just be put away. You're not going to solve every little thing. You know, the toothpaste tube is supposed to be squeezed from the bottom. I was teaching a class on this. I was teaching a class on this, and one of my guys said, It says on the tube for best results, squeeze from the bottom. He's an airline pilot, and I'm glad that he's that meticulous. We bought a tube of toothpaste for everybody in the house. Squeeze it any way you want to. Don't you mess with my tube. <laughs> Can't we let go of some of those things? Can't we find some creative way around it? Do we have to confront everything? No. Cover. Let it go. With children. We need to be careful that we're not letting our children grow up undisciplined, but there may be a lot of little things we need to let go to cover over. The last thing on my list of C's is compassion. Am I caring for others like God does in my anger? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, most Christians I know would never call somebody an enemy. Well, they're not my enemy. Well, are they your friend? Well, no, not my friend. Well, (laughs) there's only two categories for God, friend and enemy. And if they aren't your friend, if you don't like them, then this fits. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And if you go to the end of chapter 5, he says, that you may be the children of your father. In other words, God is perfect. How does God respond to his enemies? He offers them salvation. What did Jesus do while he was hanging on the cross? What did he say? What? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want to ask you in your anger, are you acting in your anger like God acts? That is the ultimate standard. Now, does God call people to account for their behavior? Absolutely. At the same time that he's expressing a willingness to forgive and restore and change. And somehow we have to mirror that. The scripture says that when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. God saved us while we were still enemies. Look what he says here, back at Ephesians 4. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your wrath. Don't give place to the devil. Don't give place to the devil. What's that mean? That means you're either acting like God or you're acting like Satan. And when you act in a self-righteous, judgmental, I'm going to get you back kind of way, over angry situations, you're playing on the devil's team. You're playing on the devil's team. Love your enemies. I would challenge you that when, if people do things that are hurtful to you, you need to have the eyes of compassion to say, you know what? They don't know any better. 
And how can I lead them on toward the Lord? How can my response to anger lead them toward the Lord? How can I resolve this in a godly way? And that's where I come down to this attitude of humility. I've been wronged in my life. You've been wronged. Now, some of the times when we think we're wronged, it's just our perception or our prejudice. But there are times when we've all been wronged. And the question is, are you going to humble yourself and say, you know what, I'm not really the important person here. Them getting right with God so they will act right toward me. That's what really matters. Can I humble myself? You know, scriptural humility is not feeling low. It's putting the other person first. Can I be so concerned for this hurtful person that I put myself aside and just care for them? I think that's got to happen in the family. You know, parents, your kids are going to, they're going to, you know, disappoint you left and right, make you mad. We, we took our kids to Disneyland when they were about that right age, saved up our money and drove down there and stayed in motels and ate fast food and Boy, we had a big time. As we were pulling in the driveway, one of the children says, what are we doing now? What are we doing tonight? Something like that. And I'm thinking, well, I'm choking you. That's where we're starting. (laughs) (laughs) But she's a kid. Can Can you put yourself aside? And I'm not saying I did that all the time. I didn't always put myself aside. But that's the goal. Put yourself aside and say, what is the big picture here? What does God care about here? And how can I be part of that for my family? The third trait that we want to look at today is this, responsibility. Successful families are built on responsibility. The command is in verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. You are either a person of responsibility who who works to meet your needs, or you are a thief who, who lives off of other people and who takes from other people. What are the attitudes of thievery? The first attitude is this, the attitude of idolatry. I can't live without this. The teenager who goes and steals the latest CD. They don't have money to buy it. And they, they've got to have this CD because everybody's listening to it. Or they've got to have this lipstick. Or they've got to have this thing or whatever it is. I can't live without this thing. I've got to have it. That's nothing more than, than idol worship. The second attitude is one of selfishness. I need this more than the people do who, who own it. Some information from an an online article says this, inventory shrinkage, a combination of employee theft, shoplifting, vendor fraud, and administrative error cost United States retailers over 31 billion with a B, $31 billion last year. And that is based on a report from 118 of the largest U.S. retail chains. That's not from every business in the country. $31 billion in shrinkage. People stealing things. I need this. It's a big company. They'll never miss it. I need this more than they do. 
one of the attitudes of thievery is impatience. I want it or I need it now. There are things in life that we actually need that can become such an object of desire that we would steal for it. And then there are things that we want. And, and I would just point you in the direction of Matthew 7, which says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If you are a Christian, you can rest in the care of God. You don't need to be impatient because if you need it, God will give it to you. Let him who stole steal no longer. What are the actions of a repentant thief? Interesting question. When is a thief no longer a thief? According to that verse, he's no longer a thief when he works to support himself. First of all, the repentant thief stops his stealing. Well, I could come back to the issue of lying and say, do you believe it's wrong to steal? God clearly says it is. You have to embrace that. Number two, working is starting, is started. If you're a thief, you need to get a job. And that kind of goes without saying, but that is, if you're a Christian saying, I want to stop my wicked ways, you need to get a job. And in this, you will probably have to humble yourself because you're not going to get a $40,000 a year job right out the chute. And so you're going to have to humble yourself and handle a few hamburgers or you know, sweep a few streets or whatever you have to do, but it is noble and honest work when you're doing it righteously. Stealing is stopped, working is started, and giving is started. Do you understand that here? God doesn't say your responsibility is only to support yourself, but you are supposed to give to him who has need. Words of Christ in Acts 20.35 says, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I would ask some questions. Are you working so you can give? And I would ask this not only of somebody who needs to repent from their thievery, but all of us. Is part of your goal of working to have the ability to give to others? And I, I, I think the, the essence here is the idea of supporting those in need. It's not so much the idea of supporting the church ministry. That's a good thing too. Are you working so that you can support those who have need? Is giving part of your life plan? Is it part of your plan to give or are you only working to hoard? In my experience, I would tell you that... Uh, God's instruction about giving and receiving that is more blessed to give than to receive is a, is a wonderful truth, and I would encourage you toward it. Honesty, humility, and responsibility. As our children were growing up, we would often have those parental chats, you know, at the baseball field or the wherever, and, you know, my kids are doing this, and your kids are doing that, and we're talking about all that, and and it would not be uncommon for somebody to say, well, you're really lucky. We would talk about how great our kids are. You're really lucky. Man, it was hard for me not to just stand up and say, I'm not lucky. I have been working hard to apply what God says in my life and in their lives. And not perfectly, 
but I've been working hard. And so God has blessed us because we have invested ourselves in the righteous life. I want to challenge you today, friends. Having a good family is not a stroke of luck. Having a better family is not a stroke of luck. It is not an accident. It's not the result of a divine lottery. It's the result of a lot of hard work in righteousness. Heavenly Father, help us to invest in righteousness. Help us to work at righteousness. Father, we all struggle with all three of these things. Some of us here, some of us there, some a little, some a lot. Help us all to be considering our level of honesty and humility and responsibility today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.